0: This is episode number 5.4, the fourth episode in our series on Virgin Islands National Park in St. John. Hello, and welcome to Everybody's National Parks. Today, I am speaking with Jeff Miller. He is a fisheries biologist for the National Park Service's South Florida and Caribbean Inventory Monitoring Program based in Miami, but has lived on St. John for 20 years. Hi, Jeff. Welcome. Welcome.
1: Thank you, Janelle,
0: for having me on. Thank you for joining us. So, Jeff, I wanted to give you just a quick little background. My family, Brian and our two daughters, we went to St. John last year for a wonderful, magnificent vacation. It felt like paradise, as I'm sure you know, having lived there for so long. And unfortunately, time passed, and these terrible. Back-to-back category 5 hurricanes hit. We had our trip report that we wanted to tell, but it was no longer relevant. And now once I saw that the parks were the park reopened, I was just ecstatic and thought, "Let me touch base with all of my contacts that I made including yourself and, you know, help get the word out to get people back to the island." So, that's a Our little story and our little connection, and over, you know, we were watching closely what was happening, and my kids were heartbroken. We were heartbroken. We tried to raise some money to um, help with recovery, including my my kids (laughs) Um, working working in the farmers market with their lemonade stand and raising a lot of money for Saint John. Thank you. I'm so. Glad that you are okay and your wife is okay. Where were you during the hurricanes? So we rode it
1: out in our house, uh, kind of the eastern end of the island. Say a lot of prayers and hope for the best. Once you put all the shutters on and everything that's outside, inside, so it's a little crowded and uh, it's dark because the power's off and all you hear is the wind and the rain, springing and thundering and things banging into the house. And you wonder... What is that? And uh, when is that going to stop? And you know, is my roof going to blow off, or are my windows going to blow in? You know, the windows are all shuttered up, so you can't think it's dark. So it's a uh, it's a very humbling experience. You know, you this is actually my fourth storm of a lifetime to go through. I went to Hurricane Maryland in nineteen ninety five, and then uh, these two, and you start off, you know, hoping that your boat survives or your car survives. And then as it gets windier and stronger and louder and noisier, you go, okay, I don't care about those anymore. I just hope my home stays up. And then in the middle of it, you go, you know, I really don't even care about the home anymore. I just want to survive this. I just want to get out of this with uh, myself intact. Wow. And um, it really reduces you to feel the humility and the, the humbleness mm-hmm. of, of, how powerful nature is! Uh, there's a tremendous amount of uh, wind being blown around, obviously, and it gets blown into the house. You feel pressure changes on your ears, like you do in an airplane when you go up and down. So it's a very active time, um, and you realize just completely how helpless you are uh, amidst this just this magnificent or extremely powerful force of nature.
0: Wow. Irma, you had those feelings like going from the car, the boat, to the house, to then just us and our lives. Yeah. And then a few weeks later, you had to go through that whole thing all over again?
1: Yeah. I mean, we were so fortunate and blessed that our house did very well. I mean, we had some damage after the first storm, and then to have a second storm in another direction, so it was coming the stronger winds would be the opposite side this time. So we were very concerned about, you know, how things were gonna fare in, in this new storm and if things had weakened with the first storm, you know, would it be able to hold up and so yeah, you go you go through it all again and you're exhausted because you just spent fourteen days in between the storms literally just trying to get back together in the lives of your friends and your neighbors and and so, Maria, we were just completely exhausted before it started. And uh, I don't think it took us much time to get to this point of just, just let's survive this. And it was so long. Uh, Maria seemed to last much, much longer uh, than, than uh, Irma did. And it's another kind of missing artifact of these storms is once they go over you, you really have no idea what is going on in the rest of the world because right. you are cut off. So, so we got little bits and pieces of information, enough to know we were going to get hit by another storm. But some of the information we usually have with, like, you know, how fast is it moving, how long will it last, and a lot of those details we just didn't have. So it it's, uh, again, it's a very humbling experience to be completely at the mercy of, of the power of nature um, and just literally hanging on... And, and surviving.
0: Yeah, wow. Going through an experience like that really makes you appreciate what's important in life. I'm so glad things turned out okay for you. So Jeff, let's talk about your work. So you are a fisheries biologist. Can you tell me what you do, what your responsibilities sure.
1: are? So I, I work at the National Park Service. Um, I'm duty stationed here at Virgin Islands National Park where I get to know- program that does uh, inventory and monitoring of corals, reefs, and seagrasses here in Virgin Islands National Park, uh, Virgin Islands Coral Reef National Monument, and the national parks off of uh, St. Croix, so Buck Island Reef National Monument, and Salt River Bay Historical Site Ecological Preserve. We have monitoring stations set up in all these parks here in the Virgin Islands, and I get to kind of head up the work to keep the monitoring going and we, we report on think of it as vital signs like your weight, your blood pressure, your cholesterol. Um, the parks have determined that that ecosystems like corals, fish, reef fish and, and seagrasses are the vital signs of these marine communities in these parks. And we report on those vital signs to the park management so they can hopefully make Good management decisions to better take care of those resources within their parks. And then our program extends up into South Florida, where I've got colleagues that are stationed in our main office in Miami, where we do work in Dry Tortugas National Park and Biscayne um, National Park, as far as the marine side. And then there's terrestrial work done in all these parks, as well as Everglades and Big Cypress.
0: I see. And we obviously had a a big conversation and discussion prepared for before the hurricane. But I imagine the hurricanes, plural, this situation has changed a lot post-hurricanes. I understand that you went on an expedition with a group of scientists to survey the damage from the hurricanes in no, in November. And the hurricanes took place in September.
1: People always like ask questions such as you did like what happened as a result of the hurricane. And one of the only, reason, only ways to know that is to know what there was before. Mm-hmm. Or so you can have something to compare it to. And the Park Service needs to get a lot of credit for this because they had the insight years ago to say, look, these perturbations are going to happen, these disturbances. And we would like to understand what happens through these. So that's, how this inventory monitoring program was put together, and it was a pretty big leap of faith because mm-hmm. you say, well, you know, stuff hasn't happened for a while, are you really are going to spend money to keep doing this, and then all of a sudden you get something like this go down, and they're like, "Well, yeah, what's going on? And we're in a very good position to have the background information to tell what changes have occurred. So. Got to give a little plug for my agency there because there's there's not many government agencies that would have had the site to do this type of program. So we were pretty well positioned. We've been monitoring sites here. We have over 100 sample sites around the island of St. John that are focused in five study areas that we've been monitoring, oh gosh, since 1988, wow. specifically annually since 1997 uh, when I got here. So... To answer your question, what we saw, um, I was on a cruise um, in November uh, because the island was so heavily impacted, we couldn't really work out of the island. I mean, there just wasn't places for people to stay. There wasn't electricity to most of the island. There wasn't any place to get um, your scuba tanks filled. So um, a research boat was brought down from the University of Miami on a National Science Foundation grant to look at the environment post-storm so we lived on this boat in the south shore and revisited our monitoring sites with a number of other scientists um even there's a donkey in the background
0: <laughs> that was a donkey <laughs> that's so funny i thought yeah. it was like a steamboat or something
1: <laughs> no yeah that's uh, that's our neighborhood herd of feral donkeys
0: oh i think um, well i think we'll keep that in because uh <laughs> okay. people will know you're really there
1: <laughs> I'm, I'm really here. Um so the scientists from the University of uh, uh New York at Buffalo, uh Cal State Northridge, with toll scientists, uh University of uh uh Georgia, Corrigan folks, they were all down doing projects that they had set up in, in St. John prior to the storm. So we all looked at these changes and what we found is how things ha- how things went. Um for having been hit by two Category 5 hurricanes in 14 days. I think overall the reefs did remarkably well. Now that's not to say that there aren't places that have been just devastated, um, but that magnitude of impact—one storm going, you know, either directly on top of us or just a few miles to the north of us, the other passing to the south of us—so you've got strong winds and waves from all directions over a two-week period. Um, the reefs overall, I, I think, did pretty well. We've gone back to three of our study sites, well, we've gone back to four of our, our five focused study sites, and the analysis of three of those sites shows that only at one of them was there a 30% decline in coral cover. So coral cover, um, think of it as looking down, gosh, excuse is I do, this, is look down the top of somebody's head. You know, their head's covered with hair. Some heads aren't covered with hair. So what we do on a reef is we look down at it and we say, well, how much of the bottom is covered with coral? And how much is covered by sponges and how much is covered by algae? So we look at the amount of the bottom that's covered by these different benthic components. And um, one of the study sites lost 30% of the coral cover. So that was pretty dramatic. The other two that the analysis has been done with uh, are about the same as they were prior to the storm. So it doesn't mean that there wasn't damage. It just means that the, the damage um, wasn't widespread enough that we were able to detect it with our, with our monitoring. It also is that those monitoring sites are at depths um, where the impact was a little less because of the depth. So our monitoring sites are in anywhere between 20 and 60 feet of water, and at those depths, um, yeah, the bottom was was disturbed and rearranged, and corals were toppled, but not like it was it's shallower. Most of the effects of the occur- of storm occurred in in less than 20 feet, and that's where you find um, most of uh, that's where we saw most of the damage. And it's not just to the the hard coral structures, but to the soft corals and the sponges and the the other associated animals.
0: So from what I'm hearing from you, it sounds like the coral didn't suffer too much from these storms, but we could kind of resume the conversation we would have had last year before the storm in terms of just, you know, the regular situation and condition of the status. What is coral and, and what's happening just from regular change in climate and tourism and things like that and what's affecting the coral? Is that fair to say?
1: The seascape has definitely been changed. Um, the, the, you know, the storm, it, it definitely did rearrange things on the bottom. Um, I was out snorkeling yesterday, you know, and sea fans and corals that are supposed to be upright in the water and filter water as it flows through them, the sea fans, you know, are laying on their side. Um, So those are, you know, those are definitely uh, storm effects. There are are definitely places that you go where you see coral that's been tumbled over. But the, the reason I say is it's, it could have been worse. It is it was just so much energy expended. You, you, I don't know if I'm trying to remember when you were here. If you went to Hawks Nest
0: Reef, we did not go to Hawks Nest. No, we went to Honeymoon. We went to Trunk Bay, Cinnamon Bay, Maho, Francis Bay. Um, we went to Water Lemon Cay, but we did not go to Hawks Nest.
1: It's not that the corals weren't impacted by the storm. It's just I think that it could have been so much worse. Uh, for example, at Hawk's Nest,
0: um,
1: that's where we have these three patch reefs that are comprised of predominantly elkhorn coral, which is the shallow water branching coral. And imagine the wave action that pounded upon that reef. Yeah, there are broken corals there, but many of the corals are in still upright growth position. So they may have lost like an arm or part of their structure, but most of the colony is still intact and upright in the water column. And and to me, that's a very good sign because as powerful as these storms were, I thought that area just might be completely flat. Um, I was out there snorkeling yesterday and you can actually see new coral growth taking place around those areas where the coral had been broken. So those are all very good signs, it's just that could have been so much worse that I'm I'm pleased that not as much coral has has actually been damaged.
0: And like the fan that you mentioned, for example. Right. Like the trees, they're sideways right now, but will things eventually pop back up after some time? you
1: know, there's a good bit of structure. um, Coral colonies and sea fans, you know, that have been dislodged and knocked over. Um, Unlike the trees, they will not... um, Grow back up. Those things that are filter feeders or suspension feeders, they feed on. They depend on the water current to flow through them to give them their food. They um, once they're laying on their side, they don't get that circulation, and so they're compromised and will die. Uh, um, okay. So those kind of things are are really hard to see, and and those are the effects of the storm that we do see in the water and. And those are mostly in the shallow, than 20-foot range. Mm-hmm. You can walk along the shoreline and and see soft corals, hard corals, and, and sponges that have been washed up onto the beach. Um, there's always some of that, but certainly now there's more since, uh, since the storm has passed. So those are kind of the impacts that people are going to see when they come. There still is beautiful corals to see in the water. And the water quality is improving, um, but it, it's this is a this is a fairly long process to to recover from all this, and and the marine side is much slower to recover than the terrestrial side. Mm-hmm. I mean, if I can step back to the storms, we wrote, we got out of the house that that morning, you know, and the vegetation was blown off the trees. The leaves are gone. Everything's there. It looks like fall, but. You know, we're in the tropics. We don't get fall. The leaves aren't supposed to fall off the trees.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: So they have all grown back for the most part. Yeah, and I have got a couple dead trees on our property where it's, they've been damaged too much. But for the most part, the island is green and lush and hilly and, and looks very nice. But underwater, it's just going to take a whole lot
0: more time. And what what kind of time are we talking about? Are we talking about months, years, Whew. generations?
1: um yeah generations multiple yeah. decades um, i mean this is this is a a big change um, you know like if you have a fire in a forest it's not the wood trees that just start growing again there's a successional change that takes place within that community and when you lose some very old uh, very ancient corals the the real structural reef building corals and um, it 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 takes a while, uh, and, and we're talking many many decades um, for those corals to begin to grow again. And then, when you only grow the width of a dime a year, about a millimeter a year, it, it takes a whole lot of years to even see some some visible growth. Mm-hmm. So, you know, sadly, uh, if, if if you didn't see the island before September sixth. Um, it has changed.
0: Mm -hmm. So Jeff, if visitors are coming to the park this year, will they be able to snorkel or dive? And uh, if so, where should they go?
1: So absolutely. The snorkeling and diving is still available, still open. It's still a a really fun thing to do. Um, There's just been significant change. Uh, There's still corals to see. There's still fish to see. And the water is still blue. Um, the water quality is not quite what it was, but it's improving um, as time goes on. The North Shore beaches are great. Um, again, they're they're not quite what they were. They're changing. And they it looks like to me they're beginning to grow a little bit back to what they were pre-storm. One of my favorite places to snorkel um, is Water Lemon Key. And that did remarkably well during the storm. So it's um, I know you guys had a good time there when you... That here, mm-hmm.
0: um, and it's
1: still a really good place to snorkel.
0: Oh, good! That that makes me happy. <laughs> and so, if you go around the island, the the key there, would you be seeing things that are kind of sideways, or or that just fared uh, may, well?
1: Yeah, you may see you may see a couple corals that have been knocked over and see fans that are sideways. Certainly, um, but the majority of the reefs there um, did did okay. And you'll see it uh, pretty similar to what it was uh, prior to September.
0: That's good news. And that is not um, kid-friendly for little kids. We felt, you know, we weren't going to take, that was kind of strenuous swimming. So we took turns when we went there and did it one at a time and stayed with the kids, you know, in the shallow water while we went out. Although they still saw tons of stuff. There can be some strong currents around there. Yeah.
1: So you, people do want to use caution. Um, it is, you know, open water there in that channel between the U.S. and the British Virgin Islands.
0: The mm-hmm. current can't
1: pick up quite a bit there. So, yeah, you're right on target with all those.
0: And a park ranger had advised me to swim around the island counterclockwise. Is that always the case, or was that just the conditions of that day that I, I was there? I think that's
1: probably reflected the conditions that day. Okay, And, um, you know, whenever you're going out in the water, um, as a safety precaution, you really want to make sure that you stay aware of your energy levels and don't get so enthralled in what you're looking at that you forget where you are. Um, Because um, you may, you know, say I've got two hours to spend in the water, so I'm going to go an hour in this direction an hour and come back. Well, the current may make it harder to come back. So you really want to keep aware of yourself, your energy, your time in the sun, you know, and the energy of those people you're snorkeling with, whether they're small kids or other adults. Are we getting blisters with our fins? Um, You just want to make sure that you stay within your comfort level and have enough energy, given the environmental conditions, to safely make it back to where you started.
0: Mhm that's good advice. And so there for example, how do you know when you're there that day if you should go around the island clockwise or counterclockwise? How how would you tell?
1: Things you can do is is ask other people who've been in the water. Okay. And it's always kind of nice to strike up a conversation with somebody else around you and see if they've been in the water and where they were and how they felt the current was. Another thing you can do reliably is as you're swimming in either direction, look at the features of the bottom, the soft features of the bottom, like the sea fans and the sea plumes, the octocorals, the soft corals. They will bend and sway in reflection to the direction of the currents, and that will help guide you in, in the direction that you want to go. Um, I generally like to go down currents at the and meaning when I'm most fatigued, um, that's why I want the current to help push me back to um, the place where I got in. So uh, I'm going to generally start the dive, uh, start to snorkel against the current so that I can have the current help push me back to where I need to go uh, when I'm done and a little bit more fatigued.
0: Okay. That makes a lot of sense. That's helpful. Going back to small children, is there a place that might be easier to take small children?
1: Both Cinnamon Bay and Maho Bay, uh, Hawksmith Bay um, and Trunk Bay uh, along the North Shore, those are all very kids friendly areas. Um, Maho Bay certainly did sustain a lot of impacts. Uh, part of the road at Maho Bay has been compromised, so it's down to a one lane road. Um, the pavilion structures at Maho um, had to be torn down because they were structurally unsafe. So that's a bit of a change, and, um, you know, those of us who really know and love Maho will, you know, have a hard time adjusting to the new reality there. But in the water, the, the water's clearing up. There's still turtles in there. There's still really nice seagrass. I saw a sea star in there the other day. So it's still a nice, simple place to, to walk in off the shore and, and enjoy some of the things in the water.
0: Okay, good. That was um, definitely my kid's favorite spot was Maho Bay.
1: Francis Bay. Francis Bay has also turned out to be a really nice area. So um, that uh, is a wide open beach. I was there on the weekend um, with just a few people there and um, lots of sand. Um, The snorkeling near and on the rocks between Francis and Maho is a a nice place to go as well.
0: Okay. And how long will it take for the visibility to clear up? Is that the visibility is because just things were all shaken up? (laughs)
1: You know, it's really hard to say. Um, the Boy, it's hard to say. I think it's a combination of a lot of nutrients um, being introduced in the environment, both from land-based runoff and from deep water upwelling, as well as uh, organic material that's decaying in the water that was washed off during the storms. I think there's some contribution from the beaches where the different grains of sand texture on the beach, whether they be coarse grain or fine grains, got moved around and shifted around. So they're not like they were for decades. Um, They're kind of in a new state, and they're resettling out. So um, some of those fine grain materials, when you get a little bit of wave action and a lot of wind, you can have those resuspended, and that can decrease the clarity of the water. Now that'll settle out again. And... You know, it's just kind of a rearrangement and it's going to take a little bit of time for the nature to kind of work itself out and resettle itself into um, the, the more normal state.
0: I see. So can you describe just very briefly what visitors should look for and see when they're there and Looking at things, I know um, during our trip, it wasn't until middle of the week or towards the end of the week that we found this great fish guide or just um, sea guide that we were able to bring with us that was nice and waterproof. I didn't bring it in the water with me, but I was able to look at it before I went in and then look at it again when I came back out and try to figure out what I was seeing. So, and particularly with regard to the coral, can you explain it a little bit?
1: There's a marine guides and websites have exploded and with marine identification, they can be very simple um, to like those waterproof guides that you're talking about. They're plastic sheets that are maybe 8 by 12 inches or 8 by 10 inches. And they're front and back with colorful pictures of some fish and some corals and some other invertebrates that you may see different crabs and shrimps because they are plastic they're water resistant you can take them in the water but really what they're for is to use on the beach where you're dripping water and you're getting things wet and and you can you know handle these things and turn around with your kids and you know say oh remember that this is what we saw that blue and yellow fish um so that's very handy there are some books that are actually plasticized like that that you can use they're small maybe 20-25 page books and you can use those on the beach as well. I mean, I've seen some people take them in the water. what happens; staples rust, and then the books fall apart. Mm-hmm. So again, they're made to be used on the beach, where you can drip on them and and get the pages wet, and you don't ruin them. That
0: makes sense. Then there's,
1: um, you know, much more expensive guides um, that are used, and you know, those are options as well. Um, but I think as a as an introduction to the community, those waterproof guides are are really fun and effective.
0: Can you still find things like that in town? I believe those resources
1: are available on island uh, at a number of stores around Cruise Bay and Coral Bay.
0: So that's a good tool to have. And what can people see? And what is coral just in the most simplest terms?
1: That's a great question. It's,
0: you know, it's um, it's to me it's an amazing
1: amazing organism it's a, it's a it's an animal that contains plants that when it dies it turns into a rock. uh i mean so coral is um is an animal uh it has a, a layer of skin It over theres a skeleton and then it has these tentacles that extend extend out from this this opening or this mouth and um they they are colonial animals. Multiple times, so they grow in colonies. And when you're looking at coral on a reef, whether it's a hard coral or a soft coral, what you're looking at is is colonies of these very small individuals that have grown together uh, and formed these amazing structures. Um, that we call coral reefs.
0: And how many different types of coral are in the park? There's hard corals and soft corals. Hard
1: corals uh, generally have a hard calcium carbonate skeleton. And soft corals have generally have a more flexible skeleton. They're like the sea sands, the sea plumes. Um, they look like bushes and trees and shrubs, but they're, they're colonies of coral animals. And there's probably 35 to 45 species of hard and soft corals combined uh, in, the, in the national park.
0: Okay. And when people are going out for a leisurely snorkel, what will they commonly see in terms of sea creatures? You go
1: snorkeling depends upon where you're going snorkeling. Um, if you walk in off of a sandy shoreline, you're really not going to see much. Coral needs a hard subs to grow. So you want to go where there's rocks or where there's some other type of hard underlying structure. I mean, you may remember this um, when you went in the water at at uh, Maho in the sandy area. You didn't see a lot of fish or or other organisms, but as soon as you see some structure, if you got near the shoreline and saw rocks, then you begin to see the fish and some of the other animals associated with with the reef. And that's because they need that hard-bottom structure. So if you're snorkeling at Maho or you're snorkeling it at um, Lionster Bay and Water Lemon, you want to go to where you see structure. That's where you're going to find hard corals and soft corals. Once you have that structure, then you're going to find the animals associated with it, the fish and the crabs and the shrimp. because Think of it as like people in an apartment building. You know, you need the apartment building for the people to have a place to live. So you need the reef structure before you have the other reef-associated animals with them.
0: Got it. Are there favorites of um, what you visitor might see? Like, they're really happy if they get to see this certain fish. Or For me, it was definitely turtles. That was the most exciting for me.
1: Yeah, you're a big fan of turtles. (laughs) That's great. Um, Yeah, turtles are really cool. Um uh, I mean I'm I'm an invertebrate person. I I uh and I tend to really enjoy sponges okay. um just because they're they're so bizarre. Um, <laughs> but um I think one of my favorite places to go, uh, snorkel here is around uh Water Lemon Key in Leinster Bay. Mm-hmm. I mean I don't think I've ever been disappointed snorkeling there. I mean I always see a seahorse there. Oh, um, spotted eagle ray. I've seen tarpon, um, and then the reef there is just kind of fun, and in, in that it's it's kind of on the edge of of the the narrows between Tortola and the U.S. Virgin Islands, St. John. So the current can pick up, and you just can get some amazing things swim by. The water quality seems to be pretty good. Um, that's one of my favorite places to go.
0: Nice. Um, what was the ray called that you said? A spotted eagle ray. Spotted eagle ray. Okay, um, I I saw two very deep, um, but it was very exciting.
1: Yeah, But see the long tail on those, they have really spectacular long. You know, and none of this stuff is going to hurt you. I mean, I think that's a really important point to get across. Is is these these marine animals? You know, are, are you know sometimes manta rays are called devil rays, and you know they're None of these things are trying to sting you, kill you, or eat you. Um, they just exist because the ocean is their home. You know, we're visiting them by going snorkeling or diving. Um, if there is any interaction, it's in a defensive action. It's because, you know, you stepped on something that, that you get injured uh, or that a person could get injured. Um, um, I mean, the spiny sea urchins, did you see those with the, the
0: long black spines? I don't remember if I saw them there, though.
1: Yeah, I mean, people are worried about getting stung or getting getting poked by the spines on the black sea urchins. But, you know, they don't chase you down and (laughs) stick their spines in you. They hide in the reef hoping that nobody will come near them. I mean, they don't even know that people are there. So the only time that we get injured by sea urchins is when we step on them, right? So if you don't step on them, you don't get injured. And, you know, that's just being really aware of your surroundings, and, and uh, it, it's a really safe place to be.
0: Yeah. How deep is coral found? They need the sun for energy, is that right?
1: Right. So there's two types of coral, and primarily what we have here in, in Virgin Islands National Park and Virgin Islands Coral Reef National Monument um, are the the reef-building corals. Uh, they're hermatypic corals, and those corals like to grow in sunlight because they need the energy that the sun gives them, and there's those antheli to produce energy and lay down skeleton. Um, there are some very deep corals that are found, and those corals grow exceptionally slowly and are relatively small, and they're ahermatypic corals, so corals can be found um, hundreds of feet deep. But the corals that you're going to find in Virgin Islands National Park or reef building corals, they like the sun. Um, they're going to be, you know, in the range of 120 feet and shallower, certainly in what we call the photic zone, where the the sun uh, sunlight reaches.
0: Okay. And why is um, some coral colorful and in other places it's not colorful? So
1: what help gives the coral its
0: color? Um, you know, a lot of the color is
1: derived from the number and the type of photosynthetic algae that inhabit their tissues. So the density of those those zooxanthellae help give the coral its pigment. And then the rest of the coloration of the coral generally comes from just whatever species it is, that's the color it it, it generally uh forms. There can be some variation in that just naturally, um, but on a on a general sense and, and overreaching sense, or overriding sense, the color of the corals generally divide from the type of species that it is, and then the type of species and the amount of those that are found in its tissue.
0: Okay. Hurricane Hole, what is that?
1: Hurricane Hole is part of Virgin Islands Coral Reef National Monument. So, as such, the Park Service tries to manage that area. It's ringed by mangroves. And these are very special trees that are especially adapted to live in salt water. Most trees can't do that. And um, those mangroves are exceptional nursery habitats for small fish, small invertebrates, and all sorts of terrestrial uh, juvenile animals, birds and other organisms. So Hurricane Hole is this this expanse of these convoluted bays that are ringed by mangroves that occasionally boaters use to help protect their boats during storms.
0: Can visitors go there to dive or to snorkel?
1: Sure. Um, The snorkeling along the mangrove uh, line shorelines is really fun. You can access that by kayak. They were heavily impacted by the two storms. Uh, We were actually out there um, just a few days ago. Um, There's also uh, several piles of boats that the park is working very hard uh, to get those boats off the shoreline. So that area certainly was heavily impacted. Um, and, you know, the recovery there is ongoing, um, and, and will take a, a substantial period of time, but it's still a very interesting habitat to see. We saw oyster catchers in there yesterday, um, and, um, uh, blue heron. So it's, uh, it is a really cool place to, to snorkel and to kayak. Um, it's fun. You can, you know, when the island's really busy and, and lots of visitors are here, you can go into Hurricane Hole and it's like there's nobody else there. Um, you, you can really be by yourself and, and the world and that's kind of a fun thing to do. Oh,
0: nice. What do you want visitors to know? You gave us some advice about safety precautions and being aware of your own energy levels. and But in terms of how to snorkel, if you don't want to touch it, what other guidance do you want people to know in order to really for the protection of of the coral
1: I think some of the most important steps that people can take when they get ready to go snorkeling is to start really slow uh, I mean I think the tendency is to want to jump in real quick because you've got a limited amount of time first prepare yourself you know make sure that you've got um, uh, some sun protection on which hopefully is some sort of skin, some sort of a shirt, um, we're trying to minimize the amount of sunscreen that gets taken into the water because we know there can be detrimental effects on that. Mm-hmm. Um, we, you know, want to, um, you know, really be careful about the types of sunscreen we use and try and read that really small print uh, on the sunscreen bottles to make sure they contain the right type of chemicals. So if you can wear uh, some sort of rash guard, that will keep you out of the sun. Then preca- prepare your gear. Make sure that you put some sort of defog in your mask when the mask is dry, and make sure you do that with a clean, dry hand, because by putting that defog on the mask, you're actually cleaning it and making sure that, that no fog forms on it. Once you get a defog, you put it in the water, you rinse the defog out, you put it on your face, make sure you're all cares out of the mask, and then you leave it on your face. Don't move it up onto your forehead. You leave it on your face and go into the water. I know that seems like a lot of steps just to put a mask on, but if people vary from that sequence, what happens is they get water in their mask, they get fog forming in their mask, and then they can't see, so they stand on the bottom to make adjustments. And when you stand on the bottom, then you're standing on top of something. Mm
0: -hmm. So
1: if we do this preparation before we get in the water, then we're much more likely to see some cool things and not have to stand on the bottom which can cause damage to the bottom. So once you're out snorkeling, another thing that's really cool to remember is if I want to talk to you and show you something, and then we're out snorkeling, and there is something I have never seen before. So if we stop, the general tendency is to kind of stand vertical in the water and talk to each other, because that's what we do on the land. But as soon as we start talking to each other and looking at each other, we forget about what's going on with our feet. And down below the water surfaces, our feet are acting like egg beaters and they're just, you know, kicking and kicking really hard on that thing that I've never seen before. So it kind of defeats the purpose of seeing that really cool thing, because when we're talking about it, we're kicking it. So the easiest thing to do is when you want to talk to each other in the water is to float on your back. Mm -hmm. If you float on your back and talk to each other laying on your back, then you've got your feet up near the surface and they're not going to do any damage to the bottom. And then when you're done talking, then you roll over and you get to look at that thing that you've never seen before that's really cool and it's still there, still alive. That's so good, I think nice. those things are, are really they're going to enhance when you go in the water. They're going to make it much more fun for you. You're going to see more um, and you're going to protect the environment you've come here to see.
0: Hmm. Yeah. Speaking of which, the sunscreen, do you have recommendations on that? Because I just think about protecting my skin. Right. So what do we need to look for to make sure we're not going to do extra harm to what's in the water by protecting ourselves?
1: Right. We certainly want you to protect your skin when you're going snorkeling. And the easiest way to do that is to wear some sort of rash guard and leave the chemicals alone. But if you're going to put on a chemical sunscreen, uh, recent research has found that, um, sunscreens that contain like oxybenzone type material, um, can have detrimental effects to coral in its life cycles. So we try and stay away from those types of products, um, uh, that have that, that oxybenzone material. And it's kind of hard to read because those active ingredients are printed really, really small on the bottles. But, um, If you look for those and stay away from those, um, current research suggests that that you're going to be doing doing good things for the reef.
0: Okay. What are the biggest threats to the reef besides, we already talked about snorkelers and divers accidentally touching it? Boat's an issue or are people pretty well educated about um, where and how you should anchor and things like that? And then what about temperatures increasing? I think
1: one of the things that these storms have really brought out is how important national parks are to providing corals and fishes with an environment where we've minimized or attempt to minimize the threats that exist to them. I mean, so you can't stop the storms and, you know, we're working on trying to deal with our climate in a global sense by taking local actions. Um, So what we can manage as far as threats are what we do to corals, that we don't step on it, that we don't drop anchors on top of reefs. The park has uh, over 200 mooring balls, and it's very easy for boaters to tie up onto these moorings instead of dropping anchors. So that does a tremendous amount to protect the reefs. Um, We just have to, Know that we don't drop anchors and that we use corals, we use the mooring balls. Um, things like using a rash guard instead of sunscreen is a really good step. Um, what the park does is, through its management is try to minimize other threats to corals, like land-based development and and sediment runoff. You know those are the things that by making the park we can try and reduce, minimize, or eliminate those large-scale sort of watershed. Scale types of impacts. So, I kind of break the impacts down into those things that we can do something about directly and 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 rapidly, versus those that are a, a little bit more large scale, like climate and and storms. I see.
0: Um, well, we've covered a lot of things here, and it sounds like. It's still a beautiful place. People should still come and get out there and get in the water. And you'll still see pretty things. You'll still see beautiful fish and turtles and the coral, soft and hard coral. To end, Jeff, can you share something, a most memorable moment, your favorite dive, a favorite story or experience with you and the water in the park?
1: Sure. You know, I, I just would like to echo what you said. It is, it is still a really beautiful place. I mean, there's no doubt that these storms have left a footprint, but I'm still excited about going out in the water and snorkeling and diving. I mean, not only is it the work I like to do, um, but it's, it's what I find great pleasure and what jo- great joy in. So, um, I'm, I'm thrilled to do it. I'm still excited to do it here and, and I look forward to it. And I think that's what, is some of my best memories here is I've had the the privilege to get to know these reefs. I mean, we've been monitoring some of the same places uh, for over 20 years now. I mean, I've seen these corals grow. I've seen some of them get sick and die. I've seen them change over time in a way that, that few people have the ability and the privilege to do. I feel Extraordinarily fortunate to be able to do that and, and to know what I'm looking at. That these are very, very old animals, um, that, that are struggling, but they're surviving and they're continuing to grow despite some of the adversity that's put in their way. So I get tremendous, um, pleasure and satisfaction in, in just observing those small subtle changes and nuances. Um, for example, you know, you may drive the same route to school and back, and you know that plot of forest, you know those trees, you know, you know those are the landmarks that you typically see. And I get to see that in the water. To um, me, that is that's really filling, and and it gives me great satisfaction.
0: That's really special. Thank you for taking the time to talk about all of this and give us an education and some great tips and guidance and I hope that uh, things will clear up visibility and people will get to enjoy it. Thank you so much, Jeff Miller, for joining us, fisheries biologist for the National Park Service's South Florida and Caribbean Inventory Monitoring Program. Thank you so much for your work that you do. Thank
1: you, Janelle, for having me on. I appreciate it.
0: Thank you for listening to Everybody's National Park's as a reminder, Virgin Islands National Park is open to visitors. Check the park's Facebook page for the latest status. As always, show notes and links to resources for this episode may be found on our website, everybody'snationalparks.com. You may find the podcast on Apple podcasts or wherever you listen to your favorite podcast. If you like the show, write a review and please tell your friends. You may also follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram, or send us your comments at everybodysnationalparks.com forward slash contact. we love to hear from you from the parks you are visiting, so please tag us at hashtag everybody's national parks. Most of all, enjoy exploring the national parks with your family. Bye for now.